one of the most important Jewish contributions to our understanding of leadership is its early insistence on what in the 18th century Montesquieu called the separation of powers. Neither authority nor power was to be located in a single individual or office. Instead, leadership was divided between different kinds of roles. One of the most important of these divisions, anticipating by thousands of years the separation of church and state, was between the king, the head of state on the one hand, and the high priest, the senior religious office, on the other. Now this was revolutionary. The kings of Mesopotamian city-states and the pharaohs of Egypt were considered demigods or the chief intermediary with the gods. They officiated at supreme religious festivals. They were regarded as the representatives of heaven on earth. Judaism, by stark contrast, allowed the king very little or no religious function other than reciting uh, the Book of the Covenant, mainly Sefer Devarim, every seven years in the ritual called Hakel. In fact, the chief objection to the Hasmonean kings on the part of Chazal, the sages, was that they broke this ancient rule, some of them declaring themselves high priests also. The Talmud records the objection, let the crown of kingship be sufficient for you, leave the crown of priesthood to the sons of Aaron. The effect of this principle was to secularize power. No less fundamental was the division of religious leadership itself into two distinct functions, that of the prophet and the priest. That's dramatized in this week's parsha, focusing as it does on the role of the priest to the exclusion of that of the prophet. Titzavah is the first parsha since the beginning of the book of Exodus in which Moses' name is missing. It's supremely the priestly as opposed to the prophetic parsha. Priests and prophets were very different in their roles, despite the fact that some of them, most famously Ezekiel, were priests also. How did they differ? Well, the role of the priest was dynastic. That of the prophet was charismatic. Priests were sons of Aaron. They were born into the role. But parenthood had no part in the role of the prophet. Moses' own children didn't become prophets. Secondly, the priest wore robes of office. There is no official uniform for a prophet. Third, the priesthood was exclusively male. Not so prophecy. The Talmud lists seven women prophets. Sarah, Miriam, Devorah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, and Esther. Then fourthly, the role of the priest didn't change over time. There was a precise annual timetable of sacrifices that didn't vary from year to year. The prophet, by contrast, couldn't know what his mission would be until God revealed it to him. Prophecy was never a matter of routine. As a result, prophet and priest had different sense of time. Time for the priest was the moving image of eternity, a matter of everlasting recurrence and return. But the prophet lived in historical time. His today wasn't the same as yesterday, and tomorrow would be different again. One way of putting this was to say that the Kohen, the priest, heard the word of God for all time, whereas the Navi, the prophet, heard the word of God for this time. Then again, the priest was holy, therefore set apart from the people. He had to eat his food in a state of purity. He had to avoid contact with the dead. The prophet, by contrast, often lived among the people and spoke a language they understood. Prophets could come 
from any social class. Then they used different key words. The key words for the Kohen, for the priest, were Tahor, Tamei, Kodesh, Chol, pure, impure, sacred, and secular. The key words for the prophets were Tzedek, Mishpat, Chesed, and Rachamim, righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. It isn't that the prophets were concerned with morality while the priests were not. Some of the most famous moral commands, like you shall love your neighbor as yourself, come from the priestly sections of the Torah. It's rather that priests think in terms of a moral order embedded in the structure of reality, sometimes called sacred ontology, whereas prophets tend to think not of things or acts in themselves, but in terms of relationships between people or between social classes. So the task of the priest is boundary maintenance. The key priestly verbs are lahavdil and lahorot, to distinguish one thing from another and apply the appropriate rules. Priests gave rulings. Prophets gave warnings. Then there was nothing personal about the role of the priest. If one, even a high priest, was unable to officiate at a given service, another could be substituted. But prophecy was essentially personal. The sages say that no two prophets prophesied in the same style. Hosea was not Amos, Isaiah wasn't Jeremiah. Every prophet had a distinctive voice. And then, finally, priests constituted a religious establishment. The prophets, at least those whose messages have been eternalized in Tanakh, weren't an establishment but an anti-establishment. They were critical of the powers that be. Well, the roles of the priest and the prophet varied over time. The priests always officiated at the sacrificial service of the temple, but there were also judges. The Torah says if a case is too difficult to be dealt with by the local court, you should go to the priests, the Levites, then the judge in office at the time. The Kohanim in biblical Israel formed the majority of the judges, and they were also teachers as well. Malachi, a prophet of the second temple, says, the lips of a priest preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. So the priest was guardian of Israel's sacred social order. But it's clear throughout Tanakh that sometimes the priesthood was liable to corruption. There were times when priests took bribes, others when they compromised Israel's faith and performed idolatrous practices. Some held themselves as an elite, aloof from the people. At such times, the prophet became the voice of God and the conscience of society, reminding people of their spiritual and moral vocation. The priesthood became massively politicized and corrupted during the Hellenistic era, especially under the Seleucids in the 2nd century BCE. Hellenized high priests like Jason, and Menelaus introduced idolatrous practices, even at one stage a statue of Zeus into the temple. This provoked the internal revolt that led to the events we call Hanukkah. Yet despite the fact that the initiator of the revolt, Matityahu, was himself a righteous priest, corruption re-emerged under the Hasmonean kings. The Qumran sect that we know through the Dead Sea Scrolls was particularly critical of the priesthood in Jerusalem. And it's striking that Chazal, the sages, traced their ancestry to the prophets, not the priests. 
but the Kohanim were essential to ancient Israel. They gave religious life its structure and continuity, its rituals and routines, its festivals and celebrations. Their task was to ensure that Israel stayed a holy people with God in its midst. But they were an establishment, and like every establishment, at best, they were the guardians of the nation's highest values, but at the worst they became corrupt, using position for power and engaging in internal politics for personal advantage. That is the fate of establishments, especially those whose membership is a matter of birth. And that is why we needed prophets. They were the world's first social critics, mandated by God to speak truth to power. Still today, for good or otherwise, religious establishments always resemble Israel's priesthood, who, though, are Israel's prophets at the present time. The essential lesson of the Torah is that leadership can never be confined to one class or role. It must always be distributed and divided. In ancient Israel, kings dealt with power, priests dealt with holiness, and prophets with the integrity and faithfulness of society as a whole. In Judaism, leadership is less a function than a field of tensions between different roles, each with its own perspective and voice. Leadership in Judaism is counterpoint, a musical form defined as the technique of combining two or more melodic lines in such a way that they establish a harmonic relationship while retaining their linear individuality. Well, you know what counterpoint sounds like. And it's this internal complexity that gives Jewish leadership its vigor, saving it from entropy the loss of energy over time. Leadership must always, I believe, be like this. Every team must be made up of people with different roles, different strengths, different temperaments, and different perspectives. They must always be open to criticism, and they must always be on the alert against groupthink. The glory of Judaism is its insistence that only in heaven is there one commanding voice. Down here on earth, no individual may ever hold a monopoly of leadership. Out of the clash of perspectives, king, priest, and prophet, comes something larger than any individual or role could achieve.